Would you pray with me? God, our gardener, you have planted so much potential for good and beauty within us. You have sowed a thousand seeds to make us who we are today. Open our ears and prepare our minds so that we can receive the growth that you have for us this morning. May these words of mine, written by a simple human who is often shallow and on rocky ground, and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Genetically speaking, I should have been born with a green thumb. Both my mother's mother and my father's father, that's my mormor and my farfar for you Swedes, they were both avid gardeners. They spent much of their springs and summers elbow deep in the dirt, turning over soil, planting, pruning, watering, weeding, clipping, and watering again. I grew up watching my grandmother split hostas just right so that they could multiply all over our yard. I watched my grandfather walk his plots, carefully planning and making improvements to his design each and every day so he could maximize the beauty of his garden. They both took great pleasure in making something out of almost nothing. It was a sacred act to them to get their hands dirty. My grandmother chaired her local garden club, planting flowers all over her small New Hampshire town so that beauty greeted you wherever you went. My grandfather believed in composting before composting was the normal thing to do. And each day he would faithfully bring his food and garden scraps to the bin by the shed, the soft, earthly fragrance of his beds floating in the Cape Cod breeze. I should have inherited at least a fraction of their skill or their discipline or their passion. You would think that plants and dirt and watering cans run in my blood, but you'd be mistaken. A love of horticulture seems to have skipped a few generations. My first week of seminary, we were welcomed with a small plant, a symbol of the growth that we would hopefully undergo as we studied theology and translated Greek and counseled hospital patients and failed Klein Snodgrass's New Testament I class. I brought my plant home to my campus apartment and I left it on my radiator and promptly forgot about it. A week later, when I finally remembered that I was now the proud owner of a plant, I returned to my radiator and saw that its leaves were burned to a crisp, its greenery reduced to brown ash. The heat wasn't on at that point in the semester, but the plant did sit in front of a giant wall of windows, and it had slowly roasted to death. This was not the first plant I've killed, so I'm admitting to you all that I'm a serial plant killer. But this death hit me hard. I was grateful that this plant hadn't actually caught on fire and burned down my entire apartment building. But I was genuinely worried that murdering the supposed symbol of my spiritual progress 
was a giant sign from the universe that maybe seminary hadn't been the right decision. I wondered to myself, did they let you graduate if you killed their gifted love fern the second week of classes? The answer is yes, they do. I'm here. Now, if you come to my apartment in West Seattle, you will experience my vast collection of artificial plants. They are maybe not as beautiful as the real thing, but they pose none of the potential fire hazard or heartbreak. So I am thankful for that. So perhaps I am the least qualified person in this room to be preaching about the parable of the sower, which was our gospel lesson today, the version from the Gospel of Mark. But as we will find out, Jesus might have some pretty unorthodox ideas about horticulture. So maybe my black thumb and I can decipher this text with a little help from the Holy Spirit. We're just a few chapters into Mark's gospel, and we've already met Jesus the solitude seeker and Jesus the healer. And Mark wastes no time in revealing to his audience the many facets of Jesus' personality and ministry. Today, we will meet Jesus, the teacher, and wrestle with what he teaches. Someone once asked me what I would talk about if I could give a TED Talk on any topic of my choice, and I didn't have an answer for them. I think I'm spoiled. I already get to talk about whatever I want for 20 minutes once a month here in this pulpit with a captive audience who can't leave. But Jesus apparently doesn't hesitate when it's his turn at the podium. He knows exactly what he wants to share with his captive audience. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus uses his first moment of teaching to announce the coming kingdom of God. The time has come, he said. Repent and believe the good news. Mark's Jesus is perhaps a little uncomfortable for our modern tastes. He is nearly always in a hurry, which feels very familiar to me, and maybe to you. But he's very busy talking about the kingdom of God, like there's an asteroid heading straight for Earth, ready to wipe us out at any moment. There's an urgency to this Jesus. But instead of lecturing the crowd about systematic theology of the kingdom or the minutiae of eschatology, the belief about what comes after, Jesus, the teacher, chooses to tell a parable. Instead of a TED Talk, Jesus invites a whole bunch of people to story time. Jesus is the kind of teacher who pulls out a picture book instead of a wordy PowerPoint. This is the kind of teacher who captures not just people's attention, but their imagination as well. Parables are always an exercise of imagination, even if the topics or scenes are familiar to us. Not only do they open our eyes to hidden meaning, they ask us to confront our belief and our behaviors. They always prompt action. The writer Marianne Moore, in her struggle with poetry, once called it imaginary gardens with real toads in them. And I think the same can be said of parables. They may be a work of fiction, but something real lives inside of them. 
Parables may not always be about facts, but they are always about truth. So together, let's dig into this imaginary garden and see if we can find any real toads in it. So let's hear it one more time. If you need to awaken your imagination, you can close your eyes. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand the parable? How then will you understand any parable? The sower sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with this parable, and here's why. Jesus' public storytelling and his private explanation are hard for me to hold in tension. The parable I love, don't get me wrong, but the discussion afterwards makes things a little more complicated for me. A lot of ink has been spilled about this parable and its twins in Matthew and Luke. A lot of books and devotionals and even well-intentioned sermons have been penned to help Christians be the good soil. It tells you what it takes to be the right kind of dirt that is in the right kind of condition 
to receive God's seed. There's a lot of emphasis on not being the bad soil, on not being unfruitful. Even Jesus seems to focus on this in his discussion with the disciples. But it doesn't sit right with me. The reality is that many of us lead complicated lives. There's not a single person alive who hasn't found themselves in rocky terrain and watched their hope dry up due to hardship or loss. Almost everyone struggles with things in our lives that can choke out what's truly important. There are always moments in time when we don't receive the sun or water or nourishment that we need to thrive. I don't know anyone who is good soil all of the time. I don't know anybody who is metaphorically perfectly tilled, perfectly irrigated, perfectly mulched at all times. We could sit around and judge people for the kind of soil that we think they are or the kind of soil that they should be. But my gut tells me that that isn't the real toad that we're searching for in today's parable. That isn't the toad in the garden. Pastor and theologian Nadia Bowles Weber says that when we focus on the soil, this parable becomes all about us. She says that if we, all we get from this parable is how not to be bad soil, then this parable becomes a judgment of the soil instead of a parable about the kingdom of God. She writes, We choose to move God out of the center and put ourselves there. And ever since then, human religion tends to be about the knowledge of good and evil and not the knowledge of life or the knowledge of God. This can be pretty easily seen in how we read the parable of the sower. I think we naturally tend to read this parable not as a parable of the sower, but as a parable of the judgment of the soil. To focus on the worthiness of the soil is to read the parable in judgment. When we approach this text or our lives with only the knowing and judging of good and evil, we miss out on the knowing of God. But to focus on the lush and ludicrous image of how God extravagantly, wastefully, wantonly sows the word of the kingdom of God is to read the parable in joy. When I read this parable, I think my grandmother and my grandfather would not get along with this type of sower. They were meticulous, precise, always optimizing and adjusting. Nothing went to waste in their gardens. It seems illogical and irrational to sow the way that our sower does. Our sower doesn't seem bothered that some of the seed is falling on less than ideal soil. The sower doesn't appear worried 
that some of his seed is going to waste. So why does the sower sow the way that he does? Why does Jesus tell a story about this kind of sower? I think Pastor Nadia is right. That the joy of the parable is that the sower sows the word of the kingdom in an expansive, generous, and lavish way. This is the toad that I've been searching for. This is what I've always hoped to find in this imaginary garden. The sower doesn't save his seed for only the soils he deems good or worthy or in the right condition. And I think that's really, really, really good news. In his blog on the subject, Pastor Adam Phillips of Christ Church Portland says that the good news of this parable is that the seed of the word of God is sown everywhere. Everywhere. It falls on shallow soil, on rocky soil, in a thicket of thorns, and sometimes it grows and sometimes it doesn't. Jesus is perhaps just being realistic when he explains that some people will hear and accept this sown word, and some won't. Some will repent and believe the good news, and others won't. That's just the way it's going to work. But that doesn't stop the sower from sowing the word. It never has, and it never will. Maybe today you are in rocky places and there are thorns in your life. I hope you don't hear this parable as a judgment of your circumstances. Maybe next week or next month or next year you will be watered and in the proper amount of sun. There are seeds in both kinds of seasons, seeds in all kinds of weather, Maybe your present circumstances make you feel like the seed planted in you is withering or it has died on a radiator somewhere. But do not be afraid because the sower will always lavish more upon you. Perhaps the seed that you've received has not taken root for whatever reason. But don't worry. The sower has plenty more where that came from, and there is never any shortage in this extravagant kingdom. Maybe there's even hope for me, a serial plant killer, because our sower doesn't seem to mind that I occasionally mess up, or am lost, or broken, or confused. Most likely all of those things at once. Here's what I want you to experience in this imaginary garden this morning and what I hope will bless you today and throughout this week. The kingdom is abundant, my friends. The seeds are everywhere, no matter where you find yourselves. 
The sower does not check your worthiness before he sows. He just splashes his seed around like Frank's red hot. He puts that blank on everything. May we have ears to hear this good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God and our sower is near. Amen.